I think every single one of us have some sort of idea of the shape and form and feel of a spirit-empowered church. And it's often informed by our culture, the church we did or didn't grow up in, the church that seemed to be happening in our town. Um, and uh, the Lord loves to gently but firmly push back on our caricatures and our perspectives. I remember as a 25-year-old, my idea of a spirit-empowered church was big and loud. Because that's the church that we grew up in. And, uh, and I think big and loud churches can be spirit-empowered. But there was this moment where I was leading worship in uh, this large conference that our church was a part of, about 4,000 people, and then went down after that conference to uh, a little town where there was an Anglican conference. And I went, I went down with a little bit of pride, I must say. I was playing some role serving there, just thinking, man, these, these guys are just, they're just not on the cutting edge. And, uh, man, they should be at our conference, 4,000 people just singing at the top of their voice, 50-piece choir, orchestra, band, it was just amazing. And uh, we were in a little home, probably with about 20 of us, and I was kind of pretty judgy. And an Anglican priest laid his hands on me, and I was filled with the Spirit. It was an amazing understated, quiet, but profound encounter with the Spirit. And it was actually a profound encounter with the way Jesus, Lord of his big C church, is willing just to pour himself out on different shapes and sizes and people and cultures. He loves his church in all the shapes and sizes. And we here represent different shapes, sizes, colors, cultures. And I think it would be so helpful if we dig into the book of Acts, because the book of Acts is not prescriptive, but as John Stott said, it is significant description. It's not just any old description, it's significant description. It's, it's the church, not in its perfection and maturity, but it's the church before it got corrupted by man's ways. So there's a purity to the Acts church. And What's amazing is that Acts is not full of numbers. Every now and again we see numbers, 3,000 saved and added in one day. But very often the dynamics described in the book of Acts are more qualitative than quantitative. And uh, we're going to look at the planting of the church in Ephesus, Acts 18 and 19. And um, all we know about this church is that it started with 12 men. Twelve men, that's what it said. And uh, within a very short space of time, uh, Luke, the writer of Acts, says, and the whole region, every resident in Asia, had heard the word of the Lord. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. So we just know that there was gospel saturation, starting with Apollos, twelve men, and then the apostle Paul, who stayed there for two years. We are currently doing a series through Paul's letter to Ephesians, and so I found myself leaning back into the planning of this church in Acts, and that just shines living color on uh, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and I'm just going to read it, um, these about 20 verses, and we're going to dig into some dynamics of the Spirit-empowered church. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. 
For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Paulus was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered, that's Paul, the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Remarkable, isn't it? And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Start who said that the book of Acts is significant description, also said that our culture blinds, deafens, and dopes us. And so we tend to have a cultural perspective of what it is to be a healthy church, a mature church, a spirit-filled church. And of course we must read Acts in its context. Um, Ephesus was, is now present-day Turkey. Uh, my wife and I have had a the privilege of, of visiting the ruins just inland from Izmir in Turkey and uh, absolutely fascinating to hear our Muslim tour guide take us to the lecture hall of Tyrannus and say this is where the Apostle Paul taught every day and then point across the street and say that's probably where he made his tents and then he took us to the large Colosseum about 25,000 people and this is where the riot broke out after Paul preached, people repented and began to burn their shrines and idols to the goddess Artemis. That's all recorded here. And you just go, oh, not just Christians who believe that this actually happened. This, this actually happened. And I confess, I, to remind myself that it actually happened, I, I stole a little rock from <laughs> Ephesus and put it in my pocket, had it on my desk for a while. It's like, this actually happened. But it's so important that we allow Scripture to pierce through, give us a new set of lenses, because our culture blinds, deafens, and dopes us. And we love as church leaders to quote Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But it's not just any church and any building of the church that will prevail against the gates of hell. It's the church that Jesus is building. It's the church that Jesus has in mind. It's, it's his design. And I think so often we, we, we build it expediently. We build it in ways that are cutting corners. I remember arriving here 2008 and my friend Todd Proctor, who leads, led a great church in Costa Mesa, said, Alan, there's one thing you must know about American pastors. Number one, we're ambitious. Number two, we're impatient. <laughs> and we're going to cut corners to get to where we want to go. And none of us are immune to that. I find myself sucked into that so easily. So we, we tend to build pragmatically, but Jesus is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Jesus is saying, no, no, actually, that's not exactly the church I'm building. That's not going to prevail. That's not going to stand the test of time. And none of us are master builders, but we are given some design here that's very, very important. Very important. And what we see here is, is the building and the design 
doesn't start big. This is, a, this is a reminder for us to never despise the day of small beginnings. 12 men. And within two years, every resident in Asia had heard the word of the Lord. Absolutely remarkable. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. And don't despise the day of small 10 years in churches. Some of you are like, yeah, it's great to start with 12, but what if we're 50 after 10 years? What about that? Don't despise that, because when the Holy Spirit comes upon the small group of people, and they actually allow the Spirit to propel them on mission, amazing things happen. So I just want to look at three dynamics. There are more than this, but three dynamics of the Spirit-empowered church that we see here. And that's the first is that in the Spirit-empowered church, there is no need to check our doctrine at the door. In the Spirit-empowered church, there is no need to check our doctrine at the door. I think many of us don't lead, don't lean into Holy Spirit ministry for fear of the caricature that we will be theologically a mile wide and an inch deep. All of us have seen the freak show. The white suits, the Learjets, televangelist with his lightsaber. You've all seen that YouTube clip, right? If you haven't, you should go see it. And, and pushing people over and taking offerings. And we, we had our community prayer this last week and there was a lovely old Pentecostal pastor in his 80s who led churches for years. And we had just an incredible time of prayer together, but afterwards he came and berated me for not taking up an offering at the prayer meeting. He's like, you never have a meeting without taking up an offering. He's like, brother, it's a prayer meeting. No, no, you must take up an offering. He's like, sorry, man, I don't know. But whatever your caricature is of wild, charismatic Pentecostal churches, and some of you grew up in those, I know, we've, we've got to see that this was a church, we'll get to the Holy Spirit stuff now, but this was a church that that was really, really particular about its theology. And it was planted by Apollos. Apollos, a native of Alexandria, says. So Alexandria in Egypt, it was like Ivy League culture. Chances are he was an Ivy League educated man. And I love the scripture's description of Apollos, that he was an eloquent man, accurately and zealously teaching about Christ. He was a theologian. Fervent in spirit. Mighty in the scriptures. Eloquent. Accurately teaching about Jesus. Although he only preached the baptism of John. And some commentators would say, well, therefore these people were not saved. And I just want to say that's absolutely not true. Because it describes him firstly as disciples, and secondly, that he strengthened those who by grace believed. I don't know how much more Christian you can get than by grace believing, accurately teaching about Jesus, and calling them disciples. But I love the description of now Priscilla and Aquila, this mom and pop apostolic business couple who traveled with the Apostle Paul who hear Apollos, see the gifting on his life, and it says, and they brought him into their home and taught him the way of God more adequately. They were tent makers, so I kind of imagine, I might be embellishing, I imagine them having this, this cool glamping tent. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and in they come, and, and they're just like, man, Apollos, there's such a gifting on you. In fact, there's a church in Achaia and Corinth that needs your gift, but but, but, but my boy, you, you, you're missing some things. It's not that you're teaching heresy, but you're missing some things. And so likely they taught him about the Holy Spirit. Likely they taught him about John's baptism. But then they laid hands on him and sent him off. So there wasn't actually time for him to correct some of the things or fill in the gaps that he had left. But isn't that true of every church? Every church is planted with some gaps. And you wouldn't say, well... That church is not Christian because they don't understand Jesus' baptism. 
There's a bunch of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters that you might go, well, you know, there's some gaps there. So there were certainly some gaps. So he has this church that's, that's planted by, by a great proclaimer, great teacher, great expositor. But then the Apostle Paul comes in and he essentially asks two questions. Into what baptism were you baptized and have you heard of the Holy Spirit? The, the, the apostolic heart is almost always asking two questions and it's where are you around the gospel and where are you around the Holy Spirit? And that's apostolic foundations. And so they believed in that Jesus was the Christ. They by grace believed. They'd repented of their sin. They, they were soundly saved. And yet Paul, and he's not just splitting hairs. He's helping them to know the difference between John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance, and Jesus' baptism, which was a baptism of righteousness. Like actually, you need to, if you believe the gospel, you need to, be baptized into a greater baptism than John's, which was just repentance, you need to realize that actually there's resurrection power in identifying with Christ's death and being raised in his resurrection power. And so that's the first thing he did. He dealt with their gospel foundations, and that's a wonderful thing. But then he deals with their pneumatology. Into what were you baptized? Have you heard of the Holy Spirit? No, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Man, Apollos, what were you doing? <laughs> preaching the Father, preaching the Son? What about the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you first believed? And I think so often we are really honing in on our gospel theology. Most churches here in the last 10 years have had a real gospel resurgence. That's a beautiful thing. Our church is similar where we realize, man, we preach the gospel to the world but not to the church. And the gospel was kind of out there somewhere but it wasn't main street. It's been a wonderful work in the last 15 years where many churches that had something else at their center like, no, 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 we can't have that at our center. It can be a side street, side alley, but it can't be main street. The gospel must be main street. That's what the Apostle Paul said. I, I came and preached the gospel as of first importance to you. And so he's getting the gospel as of first importance. But many of us that reestablished the gospel as first importance allowed the pendulum to swing and treated the Holy Spirit like that unwanted crazy uncle at Thanksgiving that we leave on the porch or in the kitchen. And understand that when, when the Apostle Paul is, is asking, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you first believed? He's not questioning whether the Holy Spirit indwells them. We'll see in his letter that, that, that Paul believes and we believe that you can't repent or believe unless the Holy Spirit has regenerated you. He indwells every believer. But actually, when, when, when the Apostle Paul describes the church, he describes it as a temple or a house. And you and I know we can have guests but not receive them. It's like, did you leave the Holy Spirit out on the porch? That's like my wife and I at Halloween. We switch off the lights. We've got some chocolates there. But, but we, 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 got, we might have guests, but we don't want to receive them. Might just crack the door open, throw out some snicker bars, shut it down. That's like the church. We don't receive him. And he's using this analogy of the house of the temple. Is he, have you been hospitable to the Holy Spirit in every room of your house? Oh, no, 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 just in home groups because then it can get weird, but not in the Sunday meeting. My friend, uh, Barry Corey, I sound like I'm name dropping, I'm not, but I use this as an illustration. He's the president of Biola, and, uh, which is a conservative college, but he's the son of a Pentecostal pastor. So part of his subversive vision is to open up this conservative college to more of the life of the Holy Spirit. And we've seen God do that wonderfully over the last 15 years. But he, he told me the other day he has a prayer partner 
that's been a prayer partner for 30 years, and this guy is in the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So you've got a Pentecostal and an Orthodox Presbyterian. And his prayer partner says to him, you know, Barry, the difference between your church and my church is what's at the end of the pews. He said, at the end of my pews and the OPC is the Westminster Confessions. And I love the Westminster Confessions. I believe they form us. And then he says, but at the end of your pews is a box of tissues. And he said, Barry, I think the church of the future has a Westminster Confessions and a box of tissues. And I agree that Jesus is building a church that is firm in its theology, that is deeply orthodox, deeply committed to the creeds, that is not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We have to contend for the faith that was once for all handed, delivered to the saints. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing. That's what Priscilla and Aquila is doing. It's not just from a pulpit. It's in your community groups. It's like you contend for the faith. Brothers and sisters died for this faith. They died for this word. Who are we to allow the winds of culture and what is popular and not? Just like, oh, no, start to pick and choose. No, we don't pick and choose. But we also to contend for the tissue box. That we don't want to die in orthodoxy. There's many churches dying in orthodoxy. The life of the Spirit. And one of my favorite quotes about this, and this is kind of what you see happening in this early church, is by Francis Schaeffer, that prophetic Presbyterian, who said kind of what I'm saying about the Westminster Confessions and the tissue box in another way. He said, at times, let's get it up here, men think of the two words reformation and revival as standing in contrast one to another. But this is a mistake. Both words are related to the word restore. Reformation refers to a restoration to pure doctrine. Revival refers to a restoration in the Christian's life. Reformation speaks of a return to the teachings of Scripture. Revival speaks of a life brought into its proper relationship to the Holy Spirit. The great moments of church history have come when these two restorations have simultaneously come into action so that the church has returned to pure doctrine and the lives of the Christians in the church have known the power of the Holy Spirit. There cannot be true revival unless there has been reformation. And reformation is not complete without revival. Such a combination of reformation and revival would be revolutionary in our day. Revolutionary in our individual lives as Christians. Revolutionary not only in reference to the liberal church, but constructively revolutionary in the evangelical orthodox church as well. May we be those who know the reality of both reformation and revival so that this poor dark world may have an exhibition of a portion of the church returned to both pure doctrine and spirit-filled life. Amen. You know you don't have to choose, right? Right. You don't have to choose between reformation and revival. And this is what we see in the Ephesians church, that they're not choosing founding them on the gospel, kicking the ties and slamming the doors of their gospel doctrine, and then he's saying, have you received the Holy Spirit? So that's the big first one dynamic. You don't have to check your doctrine at the door. Secondly, Spirit-empowered church is no more cautiously open toward the third person of the Godhead. Cautiously open. I hear that phrase among so many people who are functionally cessationist or otherwise embarrassed of their Pentecostal roots. I'm cautiously open to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's a misnomer. What we're really doing here is we're talking about being Trinitarian. We're asking if we believe doctrinally that the Holy Spirit is God. Or is he just a Holy Ghost? Or is he like just a magic pen 
who somehow inspired Scripture. Yes, he inspired Scripture, but he's more than just the inspirer of Scripture. He is God. The Apostle Paul, in Ephesians 4, talking about walking as children of the light, says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed. He's a person. He can be grieved. He can be resisted. He's not just Casper the friendly ghost. He's not that at all, actually. And Paul asked them this Trinitarian question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you first believed? And as I say, he is asking them in the temple of the church whether they're being hospitable to him. He is not asking whether the Holy Spirit indwells them. And I love the, the letter to the Ephesians because Paul, in both his famous prayers, he prays Trinitarian prayers. Probably the famous one is Ephesians 3, where he said, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Father. The gospel has adopted us. And then he, then, then he goes on to say that I pray that you being rooted and grounded in love, might be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being. Father, Spirit. And then he says, and being rooted and grounded, that you might have power together with all the saints to grasp how high and how wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Trinitarian. And then goes on, Ephesians 2.20, to say, and you are like living stones being built together into a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. Beautiful Trinitarian prayer. Have we received the Holy Spirit? And when they say no, he doesn't give a long teaching. He just places his hands upon them. He places his hands upon him. He's not cautiously open. He is actively leaning in. And again, some commentators would have a problem with this. Because they would say, okay, well, the only reason why they had not received the Holy Spirit is because they weren't saved in the first place. I, and you might believe that I, I, I don't have an hour to try and argue why I don't think that's right. But calling the disciples, saying that they by grace believed. The fact is he's also now just baptized them as Christians. So it would seem like they couldn't not be Christians. But so many commentators say, well, well you receive the Holy Spirit simultaneously at salvation. I think there's something else going on here. That this is not talking about indwelling, it's talking about an infilling. Yeah. And if, if, if we look at the multiple baptisms slash infillings in the book of Acts, seven of them are subsequent to salvation. The most famous of which is Pentecost. You can't say that those disciples were not Christians until Pentecost came. You can't say that, it's just bad theology. But we can swing the other way where we become so prescriptive about what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it's always subsequent. And it always looks like this. And I just want to take a moment to show you how diverse even the wording of infilling baptism of the Spirit is. The book of Acts uses the phrase, here, the Spirit came upon them. In Acts 10, the Spirit fell upon them. One was through the laying of hands, and Acts 10, it was just as Peter was preaching. Acts 2, they were filled with the Spirit. And others, they were baptized with the Spirit. It, it seems to use filled and baptized in, interchangeably. And these experiences are not monolithic. At times, the result is speaking in tongues. It's Acts 2. Other times, prophesying. 
Acts 10. Other times, Acts 4, where, where Peter and the believers were filled with the Spirit and spoke with boldness. No tongues, no prophecy, just testifying to the gospel with boldness. And then here, both tongues and prophecy. Paul's subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit was none of those. He got healed. Scales fell from his eyes. What is it saying? Let's not be too prescriptive. Let's realize that the Lord can fall upon, come upon, baptize, fill, look slightly different each, each time. Sometimes it's through laying of hands, sometimes it's preaching happens. In other words, baptism in the Spirit may happen simultaneously with salvation or subsequent to salvation. But, and this is where I'm leaning heavily on Martin Lloyd-Jones, it's conscious. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you first believed? You, you'd know it, otherwise he wouldn't, otherwise that's an unfair question. So he's saying you'd, you'd be conscious. Okay, conscious, well, well that means he's saying consciously speaking in tongues. No. Because sometimes it was boldness. Sometimes it was prophecy. Sometimes it was healing. Sometimes it was tongues and prophecy. But, but it's conscious. You, you would know it. Lord Jones says it, it would be characterized by supernatural joy, boldness, security, and power. And then he says in Ephesians 5.21, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, irrespective of how glorious the previous infilling was, present continuous, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to quickly just look at four views of baptism of the Holy Spirit. The first would be cessationist, and that is that the baptism of the Spirit is the same as regeneration. Just exactly the same. And I think I've, I've spent some time just pushing back on that, just saying, if that's the case, then Paul's question was unfair. Unfair. And if that's the case, then the multiple descriptions of something conscious happening to a believer, subsequent to salvation, is also unfair because it makes us expect something that God's not doing anymore. The, the second view would be the integrative or the third wave. So, so I didn't mention the cessationist uh, theologians, but MacArthur would be a big one, MacDougall would be another one, um, Wiersbe would be an, another one, and, and just honor those guys, just great theologians in many ways, but would stand separate from them. Integrative, or third wave, that would be Grudem and, and the Vineyard, where baptism of the Spirit takes place at regeneration with multiple subsequent infillings. So both Grudem and the Vineyard would have looked at the, the, the Pentecostals and just went, man, you guys made too much of baptism of the Holy Spirit. You've made a hard and fast category, so let's just Let's just not get, let's not die on that hill and say baptism is actually the sealing or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but then let's lean into multiple infillings. And I actually think that was a helpful move because Pentecostalism was way too legalistic. If you're not speaking in tongues, you're not baptizing the Spirit, and if you're not baptizing the Spirit, you might not be saved. And, and, and while we have to honor the Pentecostals, still the fastest growing denomination around the world, have to honor them. We say, actually, that did cause a lot of, actually, lack of assurance of salvation. Yes. Often provided an A class and a B class Christian too, those that could speak in tongues and those that didn't. And so that would be the Pentecostal, that would be like a Gordon Fee, that baptism of the Spirit was always subsequent and always characterized by speaking in tongues. And then D... This is more Lloyd-Jones and Rodman Williams, is what I call, I, I actually can't find a, a clear term for it, although there is a kind of theologian, I would call it analogous. 
where baptism of the Spirit may be simultaneous with salvation, but one would be conscious of it. It is often subsequent, seven occasions in the New Testament, occurring with a great diversity of manifestations, but, a, but analogous with Jesus in filling and empowering by the Spirit. That's where I'd be. Certainly got room for the integrative uh, approach, third wave approach. Uh, on our own eldership team, people would be in different places around that. But we are together and saying, irrespective of what you think about that initial thing, man, let's lean into multiple infillings. Let's stand on that holy ground of unity. Now I want to encourage you. It's like, it's okay that you land in different ways, but I think it would be problematic if you landed in a strong Pentecostal way because it would set up an A class and a B class and it would be problematic, I think, if you'd land cessationist according to this scripture. The key, though, is that we're not cautiously open. I remember years ago listening to a podcast where uh, John Piper and John MacArthur were talking uh, and it was around the Charismatic Chaos book and MacArthur, and they great friends and colleagues, MacArthur said, he accused him, he said, I've heard that you are cautiously open to the gifts of the Spirit, John. To which Piper said, I am not cautiously open to the gifts of the Spirit. I advocate full obedience to Paul's command to eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I loved it. I just loved it. He was like, guilty as charged and more. I loved it. But it's a funny thing with, you know, it's become less cool to be cessationist. But many people are functionally cessationist by being cautiously open. And I'm just going, I mean, I, I spent my whole master's, nine years of a master's degree, leaning into 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, the Greek, uh, the, 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 the voice of it. And I want to tell you, where Paul says, pursue love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. The Greek voice is both imperative. In other words, he's commanding us to pursue love and he's commanding us to eagerly desire. And imagine if we said, well, you know, I'm cautiously open to love. He'd say, are you a Christian? Well, not to do that, but pursue love. But, but then we're like, cautiously open to the gifts. No, 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 you must choose. Doesn't mean you check your doctrine at the door. We must be discerning, must be loving, but you choose. Either they're for the church today or not. And if they are, you eagerly desire. And the word there, Greek word there, is zelute, with zeal. God is not blessed by California cool when it comes to the gifts. He's not blessed by it. Because he wants zeal. And the churches that zealously lean into it, yeah, they see some mess, but the Lord meets them in powerfully way, powerful ways. Let's repent of California cool when it comes to the gifts. We're pursuing love and we eagerly desire the gifts. Martin Lord Jones. Now there are some, as we have seen, who say that there is really no difficulty about this at all. They say it is simply... A reference to regeneration and nothing else. This is the baptism of the Spirit. It is what happens to people when they are regenerated and incorporated into Christ, as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by one Spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Therefore, they say, this baptism of the Holy Spirit is simply regeneration. But for myself, I simply cannot accept that explanation. And this is where we come directly to grips with the difficulty. I cannot accept that because if I were to believe that, I should have to believe that the disciples and the apostles were not regenerate until the day of Pentecost. A definition, therefore, which I would put to your consideration is something like this. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the initial experience of glory and the reality and the love of the Father and of the Son. Yes, you may have many further experiences of that, but the first experience, I would suggest, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The saintly John Fletcher of Madeley puts it like this. Every Christian should have his own Pentecost. John Goodwin, that Puritan, describes the indwelling versus the infilling of the Spirit like this. He says, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, when we become Christians, is like a child walking along the road with his father. 
And they're walking hand in hand, and the child knows that he is the child of his father. And he knows that his father loves him, and he rejoices in that, and he is happy in it. There is no uncertainty about it at all, but suddenly the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of the child and picks him up, fondles him in his arms, kisses him, embraces him, showers his love upon him, and then he puts him down again, and they go on walking together. The difference between indwelling and infilling. Walking hand in hand with the father, infilling, the father picks me up in his arms, showers me with kisses and his love. Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm an adopted daughter and son of the father. I remember as an 18-year-old, I had some experience of infillings and I didn't know what was baptism and infillings and I had a bit of a tongues prayer language but it was faltering etc the most defining moment for me was leaving on a greyhound bus for a gap year in the middle of the night as an 18 year old in the dark and I literally just said this out loud God I miss my dad yeah. in the middle of the dark I sensed the love of the father shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit and I knew that I was with my father I think we can get so hung up on tongues or prophecy, and I'm all for that. But bottom line, it's the double witness. It's the witness with our spirits that we are adopted children of God. And it's the boldness to be a witness of the gospel. That's the bottom line definition of the Holy Spirit. And who do we think we are? If we think, I mean, Jesus, the Son of God, needed that at his baptism. When the Holy Spirit came and filled him at his baptism and he heard the words, this is my son, my dear son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Who do we think we are? We can follow Jesus on mission. We think we can without that. If Jesus himself needed that. When we have walked with cautious evangelicals, and I want to say, if you're saying, yeah, I am leaning in, but I'm cautious, that's absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. If you've been hurt, there is needed caution. But let's lean in. And people who've lent in with caution have been most helped when we've just looked at Jesus' relationship with the Holy Spirit and saying, man, whether we're Presbyterians or Pentecostals, we're all following Jesus, aren't we? Let's follow his relationship with the Holy Spirit. He was baptized by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit, Luke 3, into the wilderness. He was strengthened by the Spirit in temptation. He returned full of the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, and then stood up in his hometown synagogue and said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, for he has anointed me. I mean, let's start there. It's a good place to start. And when I look at Jesus' relationship with the Holy Spirit and mine, I just go, there must be more. There must be more than what I'm experiencing. You say that too? I think we all say that. That's the beginnings of the Spirit-empowered church. Two minutes in our land. Third dynamic here is that we are to ask for an authentication of our gospel proclamation. In other words, the Spirit-empowered church is not just having a happy moment, but it's actually being blown on mission in the power of the Spirit. There's, there's a catalyzing of an unstoppable gospel movement. These 12 men with Paul speaking in tongues and prophesying. Two years later, every resident in Asia had heard the word of the Lord. Every believer needs their own Pentecost, but Pentecost was not just a party. It was an authentication of the power of the gospel. The nations heard the praises of God in their own tongues. 3,000 saved and added in one day. Andrew Wilson, my friend uh, and theologian, really helps us with this, where he says there's two kind of metaphors for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. The one is like an empty bottle or container being filled with liquid. Don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. But he says there's another metaphor, and that is Acts 2, where there was a sound of rushing wind, and the Spirit fell upon them. 
water and wind, or wine and wind. And I think the first speaks to our own personal desire to be filled with joy and love and power. But, but the second, the latter, talks about the church's need to be like a ship with its sails ho hoisted full of the wind of the Holy Spirit. Andrew says, why do we need to be ongoingly filled with the Spirit? Because without the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the ship comes to a standstill. It's not just a bless me club. It's a mission saying, man, we need the wind in our sails. Otherwise, we're going to ground to a standstill. And Lloyd-Jones again says, the purpose, the main function of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to enable God's people to witness in such a manner that it becomes a phenomenon and people are arrested and are attracted. Not just a bless up. We have been starting to take people onto the streets. I'm sick and tired of people saying street evangelism is from the 70s. I just started seeing around the place, like, it seems to be pretty fruitful. And we've been doing this alpha course for years, and it's becoming less and less fruitful. I'm not bagging on alpha, I'm just saying in our church, it's like, I don't know, it used to be fruitful now. Well, let's just try something different. So we've got this guy, Wes, who's an old vineyard pastor, and he's just got real, real faith to be on the streets. And we've started taking people. We're in the beginning stages of it, but it's been amazing how it's not someone standing on a soapbox preaching. It's literally five to ten people going, hanging out in the Home Depot parking lot and just going, okay, who can we talk to and pray for? That's all it is. They don't even lay hands on people. They engage them and then say, what can we pray for? And they're leaning into particularly the words of knowledge, just taking risks. You know, very few people don't want to be prayed for. Yeah. Sometimes I pray for my dog, pray for my aunt, but actually that's, that's, that's the doors open. And we tell the story where a while ago he, he's just doing this and he goes into a Ralph's guy at the checkout, like big, tattered, gangster-looking dude, and he, he senses the Lord say, go and tell that guy that God loves you. It's like, God, oh, that is so ridiculously cliche. Like, Come on, I'm going to get beaten up now, you know? Anyway, plucks up his courage, goes up to him. They have the checkout, he says, hey dude, man, this might, might seem weird, weird, but I just want to say, like, God loves you. And the guy turns to him and says, Meet me outside. <laughs> oh, no. oh no. So they finish at the checkout. He walks out, speaks to the guy, and he says, The guy says, I'm a backslidden Christian. I used to lead a youth. I'm backslidden. And I'm so desperate. Today, I said to God, If you don't show me that you love me, I'm going to kill myself. Oh. He just said, your obedience. You just go, okay. The wind of the Spirit is blowing this man on mission. He's being obedient. It's different forms, different functions. But the power of the Spirit wants to flow out of our buildings and our gatherings, out into our cities, that the residents of Asia might hear the word of the Lord. Amen. And I know you've got stories like that. We've got some others. We've also got some really bad Failure stories. Preachers always tell their best ones. But boy, you know, right, right now we find ourselves in a, in a strange and beautiful season where almost every time we gather, someone comes up to me afterwards and says, I need to be baptized. I need to be baptized. We've just left the tank out. Sometimes it's one person, sometimes two, sometimes three. And, and the Holy Spirit is convicting people. We're not talking much about baptism. But the Holy Spirit is convicting people. I want you to submit to the Lordship of Christ. Often they're backslidden. Sometimes they're not saved, they just got saved. Other times it's like, man, I've just been walking on my own. I, I, I need a public demonstration, proclamation of Jesus as Lord. The work of the Holy Spirit convicts.
But let's stand together. And we're just going to ask, Trevor, why don't you come up? We're going to ask the, the Holy Spirit just to come and fill us. There's coffee coming. <laughs> but we need something else. A little bit more lasting than caffeine. And, uh, man, we're friends here. We're becoming friends. And uh, I just, I simply want to ask you, if, if you're going, I feel empty, man. Maybe you've never known the infilling of the Holy Spirit, or otherwise you have, but right now you feel very leaky. All of us have that, that sense of emptiness, or, man, I've got holes. Virtue has leaked out of me. As, as Trev leads us in a song, I just, I'm not going to call you to the front, but I just would love to ask you just to raise your hands. We've got people here who are willing to pray. And, and there's mainly leaders here. I just trust you to be able to pray. Don't, you don't have to have a, have a name tag. Um, and if you do something strange, we'll do the damage control afterwards. But um, we'd love to just lay our hands on you and ask that the Holy Spirit would come. Come with His power. Come with His comfort. Come with His love. Come with his gifts. Uh, we need him. And uh, and if there's a command to be filled with the Holy Spirit, then heaven is ready. Amen. So won't you just right now? I'm not going to have the big anointed keyboard pad. You just like, man, I'd love some prayer before we go go for coffee. Just put up your hand, and we'll come around. Great. Hold it up. Hold it up. Um, Nick and Kari and your team. Kirk and Mandy and the team. Uh, Vince and your crew, Kenny, uh, Tim, and, and your crew, just, just come. And uh, if you're stuck in an aisle in the middle, maybe just make your way up to, to the edge. That'd be great. The rest of us are going to sing. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who baptizes with the Spirit. And we are thirsty. We are hungry. And Lord, that the intensity of the world and our culture can cause us to lose our zeal, lose our sense of boldness. And we, we hear Jesus, we say, won't you reignite the flame of faith and passion? Holy Spirit, come and